Today is Resurrection Sunday, and we celebrate, therefore, the resurrection from the dead, our Lord and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that this astounding event is indeed central to our Christian faith. In fact, it is the very fulcrum that lifts our faith from all other religions which are false religions. He tells us in that text that if Jesus did not literally rise from the dead, that our faith would be in vain. That if he did not rise from the dead, our preaching would be without value. Our testimony would be false and our sins would not be forgiven. And as Christians, our faith would be but a fantasy and that we would have no hope. And all of those who had professed Christ and have gone to the grave would have perished forever. And we, he says, who have hoped in Christ in this life, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, are of all men most to be pitied. But the historic evidence of the literal appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ, combined with the many witnesses, eyewitnesses of this amazing reality, only confirm what we all know to be true. And we know it to be true because of the infallible record, the authoritative and inspired word of God that tells us that it is true. Therefore, we rejoice in the testimony of the Apostle Paul who declared in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But now Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So, dear friends, here's the good news. Because he lives, we also will live. His resurrection guarantees ours. Therefore, we can rejoice with Peter when he was facing imminent death, wrote this in first Peter chapter one and verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as we reflect upon the marvelous truths of salvation, we find ourselves in an infinite ocean of truth, a vast sea of divine mystery, the resurrection of Christ being just one of many. And today I am compelled to speak to you about one of these astounding mysteries surrounding our salvation, not because it is necessarily more important than any of the others, but because I believe, frankly, that the Spirit of God would have me share this with you today. So today we're going to move away from our exposition of the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to immerse ourselves in the marvels of redemption and the depths of that mysterious ocean of, sal of saving truth. Today we're going to search out some of the blessings that were ordained before time. We're going to ponder God's infinite and incomprehensible love for sinners, even before we were born. A love that was set in motion in the eternal counsels of his will. A covenant of grace that was promised within the triune Godhead for a people that would be chosen by God for the praise of his glory. So this morning, 
I want those of you who know the Lord Jesus Christ to get lost once again in the wonders of our salvation. It is my prayer that we'll somehow throw off the shackles of, of time and and the temporal obsessions that, that tend to cause us to forever wade in the shallows of theology and, and smile with a worshipful resolve at those inscrutable mysteries of the Almighty that constantly attest to the, to the infinite chasm between the Creator and the created. And I would hasten to add that only the eyes of faith will ever see these astounding truths, some of which will be discussed today. Because apart from Christ, these things will be utterly foolish to you. And frankly, there is no degree of eloquence on the part of any preacher that can cause the blind to see. Only the mercy of God can do that. And if you're here today without Christ, I would ask you to ask the Lord to open your eyes to these truths this morning. My prayer that is that God will be pleased to reveal himself to everyone within the sound of my voice who may scoff in their heart at the incredible truth set forth in the gospel relating to saving faith in Jesus Christ. My prayer is that those of you who think that it is a bit silly, that it is way too difficult to understand, that it is too complicated or frankly it's unnecessary, I pray that somehow the Spirit of God will bring conviction to your heart and you'll see differently. And for those of us, again, who love him more than life itself, my prayer is that once again we will marvel in his undeserved mercy and grace and get lost, as I say, in just the wonders of eternity, the wonders of our salvation, and be able to somehow climb to the very summit of this great mountain of redemption, and be able to get up to the very top in the alpine meadows of God's grace and look over the glory of all that he has given those who are united to him by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. And we're going to be looking specifically at verse 7 and 8, but I want to give you the flow of this wonderful text so that you can somehow grasp a bit of its context. Beginning with verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writing here through the inspiration of the Spirit tells us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. 
with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. In Ephesians chapter one. In an amazing economy of words, we find a perfect summary of salvation in the past and in the present and even in the future. These are God's saving purposes summarized here in verses three through the first part of verse six. We have salvation in the past and the whole concept of divine election in the latter part of verse six through verse 11. We have salvation in the present. The concept that we'll look at today of redemption. And in verses 12 through 14, we have salvation in the future. Focusing on the concept of our eternal inheritance. And each of these verses, by the way, spotlights a specific member of the triune Godhead. The father is the focus with election. The son is the focus in redemption And the Holy Spirit is the focus as the one sealing our inheritance. And on this Resurrection Sunday, the goal that I have this morning is to focus primarily on the concept of redemption. And we're not even going to be able to plumb its depths by any means, but only a part. We're going to look specifically at the forgiveness of sins mentioned in verse verses seven in the first part of verse eight. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Now, redemption is a word that we seldom use in our modern vernacular, but it was a common term in the days in which it was written because those were days of slavery In fact, during the days of the Roman Empire, especially in the first century, it was estimated that approximately one third of the city of Rome were slaves. It was estimated that the Roman Empire included more than six million slaves. And the main sources of slavery would include those that were born into slavery. There were those who were unwanted children and those unwanted children could be claimed and placed into servitude. There were people that sold their children because they needed money and slaves came from that means. There were penal slaves. There were voluntary slaves, voluntary slaves that would become slaves to pay off debts. And certainly there were slaves that were kidnapped. There was slave piracy where slave traders would would traffic them and bring them in from outside the Roman Empire. So the buying and the selling of slaves was big business in that day. 
In fact, if you had a loved one that was a slave and you wanted to set them free, you would have to purchase them. And in order to do that, you would have to pay whatever the price would be and fill out a document. And then that certificate would be a certificate of freedom for that particular slave. Now, folks, this is precisely the meaning of the term redemption here in verse seven. And there's three questions that arise from this text. First of all, from what have we been redeemed? Secondly, by whom? And thirdly, with what? And this text answers all three. Or said differently, for those of you who have no real faith in Christ Jesus, those of you who perhaps know about him, or maybe you play church from time to time, but there is no real secret devotion to God and you really don't love him, the questions would be a little bit different. It would be, first of all, from what do I need to be redeemed? Secondly, by whom and with what? And we will answer these questions, but I will do so from the perspective of those who have been redeemed. So, first of all, from what have we been redeemed? Well, the answer, quite simply, is we have been redeemed, those of us who love Christ, from the slavery of sin. Well, what is sin? Sin, dear friends, is any thought or action that violates the law of God. The Bible tells us that every man is born into sin. Every man is full of it. For all have sinned, the Bible tells us. You can think of it this way. Sin is high treason against our holy creator who has established a divine holy standard that we have violated. Sin is a pervasive rebellion that is found in every human heart. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, and on it goes. And since all since we are all guilty, the Bible tells us that we all fall short of giving God glory in our lives. And therefore, we all stand justly condemned. And therefore, subject to divine judgment. So whether it is the omission of doing good or the commission of doing evil, in either case, we have transgressed the law of God, making us his enemies, according to his word. Because of sin, Ephesians 5 and verse 6 says, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Your friends, sins, sin causes us to be lovers of self more than lovers of God. So we begin to worship idols. We worship idols, meaning anything that distracts us from worshiping and serving the true and the living God becomes an idol and the list can be myriad. Sin is the fruit of lust. In James chapter 1 and verse 15, we read that when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The prophet Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. In fact, my friends, it is so sick that most of us are unable to even see our own sin. And when confronted with it, we tend to justify it and rationalize it 
with every imaginable excuse. It is sin that destroys marriages and leaves little children to fend for themselves. It is sin that causes husbands to abuse their wives. It is sin that causes a woman to kill her unborn infant. It is sin that causes a pedophile to rape and murder innocent children. It is sin that causes terrorists to kill innocent people in the name of God and decapitate victims on camera. And friends, it is sin that causes hypocrites to play church. Everything we hate about life is rooted in sin. All of the suffering the world has ever known is due to sin. And the suffering will continue throughout eternity, only far worse than anyone can imagine, unless sin's curse is broken. Unless somehow we are bought out of that marketplace. In the 1600s, one great Puritan theologian by the name of Ralph Vinning wrote this in a book, by the way, that I would encourage you to get. A profound book It's called The Sinfulness of Sin. Here's what he had to say, and I quote, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, the contempt of his love. He goes on to say it opposes and exalts itself above all that is called God. All God's works were good, exceedingly beautiful, even to admiration. But the works of sin are deformed and monstrously ugly. For it works disorder, confusion, and everything that is abominable. End quote. What an enormous tragedy to think that every person is enslaved by this tyrant that resides in our very nature. For we read in Romans 3.10 that there is none righteous, not even one. Jesus spoke of this bondage when he said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Indeed, every man, woman and child must endure its consequences throughout life. All of the sickness, all of the sorrow, all of the tragedy, all of the tears and torture, worry, war, whatever it is, it's all rooted in sin. And we tend to underestimate its power. We see its effects more clearly as we get older. We look back and we see how that in certain ways in our early years we sow the wind of wickedness. And in our latter years we reap the whirlwind of evil. What a wicked master is this tyrant called sin. And to think that ultimately his wages is death. And the fear of death is something that enslaves every human being. Every waking moment of our life. In fact, the Bible tells us that all of creation is a slave to sin's tyranny. We read, for example, in Romans 8. How that all of creation, all that God has made has been subjected to futility because of sin, and ultimately because of that, the penalty is death. The Bible speaks of two kinds of death, a physical death that we all experience, but there's one far, far worse, and that is a spiritual death. 
In the physical death, there is a separation of the soul or spirit. The terms are used interchangeably in Scripture. There's a separation of the soul spirit from the body in physical death. But in spiritual death, there is a separation of the soul spirit from God. And since we have all been sold into the bondage of sin, according to Romans 7:14, and since the wages of sin is death, there is no escape from this bondage save one. Redemption. And herein, my friends, is the good news of the gospel set forth in our text. Verse seven, in him we have redemption. This wicked oppressor called sin can be vanquished. There is a way of escape to escape ultimately its power and its penalty and eventually its very presence. This leads us to answer the second question, an answer reserved only for those whose faith is in Christ. By whom have we been redeemed? Well, the answer is very clear, is it not? Verse 7, in him. If we look back in verse 3, we see that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In verse 4, we see that the Father chose us in Him. Verse 5, we see that we've been predestined. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, we see that the Father freely bestowed upon us His grace in the Beloved, a reference to Christ. The father said that this is my beloved son. So to be freed from the from slavery, the slavery of sin required a redeemer and the ransom price. Now, catch this. The ransom price for the transaction of deliverance was established by God himself. And the penalty of sin was death. You see, God's holy law was violated first in the Garden of Eden. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, we read that through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, folks, I want to make this very clear to you, because sometimes people get confused and they think, well, you know, I don't really understand what you're saying. I want to make this very clear. What the Bible teaches in this text and others is that when Adam sinned, the entire human race was plunged into sin. Therefore, every person that came from them was conceived in a state of sin. Therefore, now understand this, please. We do not become a sinner when we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. It is a part of our nature, like the toxic poison of a, of, uh, of a body exposed to radiation. Our very nature is contaminated with the lethal toxin of sin. So that all that we are and all that we do is fundamentally offensive to a holy God. Because his character is that of holiness. Holiness means means that he is completely other. He is completely separate. And since we all stand guilty. No mere mortal could possibly pay the penalty of death, for we all deserve to die. So we've got a real dilemma here. How can we possibly save if we cannot save ourselves? Well, the answer is a substitute. 
was required to satisfy the offended holiness of God. And because of his infinite love for sinners, God's grace came into play. God, in his grace, provided that substitute in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. First John chapter two, verses one and two tells us that Jesus Christ, the righteous, was the propitiation for our sins, meaning the satisfaction or the appeasement of divine wrath. So bottom line, here's the good news. God himself has redeemed us from the slavery of sin by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay our ransom. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans six eighteen that because of Christ Jesus, we have been freed from sin and become slaves of righteousness. Don't you love that? We're freed from sin. So now that we can now we can be slaves of righteousness in Galatians chapter three and verse 13, we read that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. There's the idea of substitution. In Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse 13, we read that he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, again, this is incredibly good news. A redeemer has come to deliver all who seek forgiveness and find mercy in him. So those who place their faith in Christ as Savior no longer live in the slavery of their lusts, of their sin. We're no longer slaves to the fear of death. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, verse 14, Christ died so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who, through the fear of death, were subject to to slavery all their lives. You know, it's a joy to my heart when I come to a person who is getting ready to pass through the veil of this life on their deathbed. It is a joy when I know that they know Christ and they have no fear of death. In fact, they welcome it. They're looking forward to it. What a testimony to the freedom that is theirs because of the redeeming work of Christ Jesus. And oh, I have seen the opposite as well. Those who remain enslaved to its tyranny and do everything they possibly can to stay alive, knowing that there's nothing that they can ultimately do. And how much more a concern knowing that there is nothing that they can do to avoid spiritual death, the eternal separation of their soul spirit. From God himself. Dear friends, this is good news. God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 49, verse 15, he has redeemed our souls by the power of his grace. And therefore, Romans 3, 24 says that we have been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And what joy. It is to watch prisoners set free from the bondage of sin. I reflected upon this as I was meditating on on this text. And I started writing down just some things that came to my mind quickly. Friends, I've seen prostitutes repent and become godly wives and mothers. 
I've seen alcoholics and, and drug addicts abandon their addictions. I've seen repentant homosexuals become godly wives and husbands. I, I, I've seen false prophets confess their hypocrisy and become true worshipers. I sh I've seen the chains of pornography fall off of men who were enslaved to their lusts. I've seen rebellious children radically transformed into servants of Christ. Friends, our God is a redeeming and a transforming God. Indeed, those who confess Christ have been redeemed from the slavery of sin by the Lord Jesus. But what was the price of this redemption? With what have we been redeemed? And this is our third question. Well, the answer is very simply the blood of Christ. This is a reference to his voluntary death on the cross. You see, again, you must understand that the price for our freedom was the shedding of his blood. Because death is the wage of sin. So there had to be a perfect, spotless lamb of God to pay the penalty. Peter tells us in 1 Peter in verse 18 that we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. But later on he says, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. Now think of this. He came into the slave market of the sinful world and he died in our stead so that we could be freed from sin's bondage, to be freed from its guilt, to be freed from its condemnation. And this redemption certainly was symbolized all throughout the Old Testament. Millions of sacrificial animals were constantly sacrificed as symbols of an ultimate substitute that would eventually come and be offered. Let me remind you of the first picture of this that we see all the way back in Genesis. You don't need to turn there. You'll remember the story. We see it specifically in Genesis 3. Remember when Satan came and he tempted Adam and Eve and they succumbed to the sin or to the temptation and they sinned? And then because of their sin, they lost their innocence. And because of that, they were separated from the sweet communion and, and, and perfect fellowship that they enjoyed with God. And the Bible tells us that they were filled with guilt and shame. And as you read the story, you see how that in desperation, they tried in vain to silence the tortures of, of their wounded conscience. And they covered their nakedness. And shame with fig leaves. But a loving and a merciful and a saving God had already made plans to satisfy the wrath of his offended holiness. It had already been set into motion before they were even created. And so the Bible tells us that he approached the two trembling sinners that were hiding from him. Those that stood guilty before their creator in their nakedness and shame, covered only with the fig leaves of their own efforts. And although Adam and Eve should have died, we witness the genesis of divine grace go into motion on that day. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, we read that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And clothed them. Here, my friends, we see the need for a substitute, do we not? 
a substitute that needed to die to cover sin, a shadow of a coming redeemer that would one day make final atonement for sin. You see, man was unable to cover his sin with his own efforts. His best efforts fell far too short to satisfy the divine penalty. So God provided a substitute. An innocent animal was killed. The first animal that was killed. The first death in the Bible. And as its blood was spilt upon the ground, God took that garment and covered their shame. And here again, we see the picture of death. The wages of sin. Imagine the look of horror on their faces as they witnessed the first death. As they looked down on the ground and, and they saw the crimson stain of innocent blood being poured out on the ground, the blood that should have been theirs. Dear friend, on that day, the sovereign plan of a redeeming God was set into motion. A picture of a perfect and final substitute that the Father would once again provide in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And all throughout the Old Testament, until the Savior eventually came, the sacrifices continued. There was one special day that the Jews commemorated God's covenant people. And many of them do so even today. It's a day called Yom Kippur, which means Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priests, especially in the days of Jesus, would select two spotless goats to be sacrificed. One would be sacrificed and its blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat that separated the violated law and the Ark of the Covenant from the presence of a holy God that hovered above the Ark. And after the confession of the sins of the people, the high priest would take the second goat and he would place his hands upon the head of that goat, symbolizing the transference of the sins of the people onto that goat. And then that goat would be handed over to an appointed man that would lead it away into the wilderness. By the way, this is where we get the concept of a scapegoat. And all along the way, as the man would lead the goat, people would grab at it and pull out its wool and they would prick it with sticks and they would spit upon it and they would do everything they could to urge it to be gone. And the man would lead it down off of the Temple Mount, down through the Cadrone Valley and up over the Mount of Olives out into the Judean wilderness. And there were stations that were placed all along the way as the man would lead the goat and eventually he would take that goat deep, deep into the wilderness to the edge of a cliff. And there was a scarlet thread that was placed on the like a scarlet string on the neck of the goat. And when they came to the edge of the cliff, he would tie a rock to that thread and throw the goat over the cliff to its death. And immediately upon the completion of that ritual, the reality of what had just happened would be relayed from station to station all the way back to the temple. Signaling the end of the symbolic cleansing of sin. Now, legend has it 
And there's no way of knowing if this is true. But legend has it that there was a scarlet thread also tied to the door of the sanctuary. And at the moment the goat was thrown over the cliff in the wilderness, that scarlet thread would turn white. Now, again, there's no way of knowing that if that ever happened. Certainly it could have happened. God could have made that happen. But friends, it does remind me of God's word through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 1 and verse 18, where the Lord says, Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. All because of a Redeemer that would someday come and take our sins away. Now with this background, may I draw your attention to verse 7? Look at the word forgiveness. It says, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. I want you to understand that the word forgiveness is rooted in this very concept. It means to send away. It means to release. You see the Old Testament parallel? What a graphic picture of how our sins were placed upon the head of our precious Savior and sent away. How far were they sent away, one might ask? Well, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 103.12 that our sins are as far as the east is from the west. And the prophet Micah tells us in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, Who is a God like thee who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You know, whenever I think of the depths of my sin and the glory of my Redeemer, my joy is always mixed with sadness because I think of so many friends and so many loved ones who suppress these glorious truths, who mitigate both the seriousness and the consequences of their sin. And it's so easy to do in our culture to play this Christian game kind of show up for church every now and then and pretend you're a Christian. And my heart mourns over that. But in reality, in the secret life, in the middle of the night, they want nothing to do with my blessed Redeemer. And even now, those who are in such a state, listening to my voice, will remain unmoved in their spirit secretly scoffing at what they've heard, hoping that I'll hurry up and finish up so that they can go eat lunch. Friends, if that is you, such an attitude betrays the fact that you are enslaved in the bondage of your iniquities. You're serving your father, the devil, the Bible says. And unless you repent, and unless you beg the Redeemer to save you, you will remain under sin's curse throughout the rest of your life, and throughout eternity. Therefore, I plead with you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Redeemer. Cry out for His mercy, and you will be saved. But for those of us who have been redeemed, may I draw your attention back to verses 7 and 8. It says that we have been redeemed according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Folks, this, is, this again is just 
mounting up more and more precious news for those of us that know and love Christ. You see, there is the point here is there is no limit to his grace. Aren't you glad it's an infinite reservoir? It is rich beyond measure. And it has been dispensed, not in a sparingly, not in a sparing way, but but but, but in a lavish way. And think of the benefits. Our sins have been pardoned. They've been paid in full on the cross. Jesus says it is finished. He was the propitiation. So the wrath of God has been satisfied. Therefore, we have been acquitted. And because we've been acquitted, there's no more penalty. Therefore, we can rejoice with the psalmist who said in Psalm 32, one, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Those whose sin is covered. And Paul said in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now, some might ask, well, why didn't God just just forgive without exacting the payment? I I, I mean, why couldn't he have just decreed, you know what? I love you so much. I'm just going to forgive you and forget all of this penalty of death and hell and 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 pouring all of that on Jesus and all of that stuff. Oh, my friend, think of this. Were he to do that, he would violate his own justice. Because, again, his justice demands the wages of sin being death. So a payment had to be made. Moreover, every sinner knows that he is deserving of punishment. So to merely be forgiven without consequence would seem unfair. Yet knowing that the spotless Lamb of God died in our stead deepens our remorse and overwhelms us with the reality of, of, his un, of our undeserved mercy. Seeing that the Lord Jesus paid the penalty that I should have paid. And therefore, because of that, I find myself coming to a song like Amazing Grace and being able to sing it with all of my heart. Indeed, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And when I think of it, because of the wounds of my dearest friend that, was, that were received in my place, my hatred of sin is only inflamed. What a staggering thought. Indeed, when I think of the crucible of grace that the Lord Jesus went through on my behalf, all that he endured on the cross on my behalf, it makes my own sin ever more detestable. In fact, there is nothing that can exceed my contempt for my sin. Spurgeon said it so well, and I quote, we love sin till we see that it killed our best friend. And then we loathe it evermore. Oh, my friends, indeed, his grace has been lavished upon us. But please hear me. When our sins are forgiven, suddenly the anguish of guilt is forever removed. Those torments of a guilty conscience that, that, that give such terrible agony in the middle of the night is suddenly gone. You may remember that. Before you were saved, those of you that don't know Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about, even though every waking moment you try to deny it. The reoccurring torture, the hot irons of conviction that burn hot in your conscience, suddenly all of that's gone. 
Gone are the visions of standing condemned before a holy judge and the filthy rags of your best efforts. Suddenly your guilt is replaced with joy. Forgiveness somehow lifts us up from the bitter swamps of remorse and places us on the alpine meadows of joy. There's gladness in our hearts. The the, the deep wounds of sin are suddenly healed by the application of grace. Friends, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I can't explain it to you. But those of you that have been redeemed know precisely what I try to say. Some of you know this and others of you know the misery of your sin and your guilt. And some of you know the relentless effort that you exert to silence your conscience because of life dominating sins that continue to disfigure and destroy. But when sin is forgiven, the bondage is broken. We're declared righteous. Divine favor is restored. Reconciliation has occurred. The Bible says that now we're, we're, we're suddenly at peace with God. There, there, there's no more enmity, no more resentment, no more offense. Our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west and buried in the depths of the sea. There is a restoration of fellowship that was lost at the fall in the garden. Suddenly the tortures of the guilty conscience are silenced and our heart is given a new song. The Bible says we're given a new heart, a new mind. We become a new creature in Christ. The old things pass away and the new things come. And as a pastor, I love to see the fruit of repentance for those who have been redeemed. You know, one of the great things about it is when that happens, I don't have to beg people to have a secret devotion to God. They love to have that. It's automatic with them. By the way, this is why I don't beg people to respond to truth. There are people within our church that very seldom show up. When there's a Bible study or something like that, you'll hardly ever see them. I know some people are busy because of, of, uh, of work, and I'm, I'm not talking about those, but I'm talking about those people who really in their heart don't want anything to do with that. You know, I never beg those people to respond because I don't want them to come for my sake. That would be nothing more than hypocrisy. But rather, I want to leave them alone. Oh, I'll just leave them alone. Let them begin to experience the full consequences of divine chastening so that they'll turn around, assuming that they're saved. But I will beg people to come to Christ. But I will never beg people who profess Christ to somehow obey him, lest they do that to please me. And in so doing, inoculate themselves even further in their self-deception. Oh, dear friend, redemption is a glorious reality. And if you're here today without Christ, I can only pray that this Resurrection Sunday will be the day that you cry out for the undeserved mercy that can be obtained when you place your faith in the Redeemer. And for those of you who know and love Christ, I trust that your hearts have been stirred once again so that they, the embers of your faith will burn hot as you reflect upon redeeming grace, I want to close with these thoughts that flowed from my heart after dwelling upon this text this week. What fiend was this that lurked in my heart, that savored sweet poison, preferring the dark? What tyrant deceived me and shackled my mind in dungeons of falsehoods where truth could not shine? 
What beast lay within me, my nature controlled, tormenting my conscience and cursing my soul, a wretched man enslaved and oppressed, subdued by a despot, my life he possessed. The tyrant was sin, whose wages is death, death, an ancient deceiver whose lies have no breadth. Who promised me pleasure but brought only pain and fettered my conscience to guilt and to shame. Condemned by my nature, a slave to my sin, with no hope and no prospect, my freedom to win. By grace I cried out for help from above and mercy came down with infinite love. When in my distress the Savior didst say, with my shed blood your ransom I'll pay. Redemption was mine, oh, blissful thought. My sins were forgiven and liberty wrought, justified freely. In grace I now stand to love and obey my Savior's commands. What a Redeemer with joy I exalt, who by His great love my freedom He bought. Let's pray together. Father, again, we rejoice in these glorious truths. And even though we can never fully understand all that you have for us and all that you have done for us, past, present and future, Lord, you have told us enough to cause our hearts to leap with joy. And Lord, I pray that once again, those of us that know and love you will be motivated even more to serve you because indeed you are our Redeemer. And Lord, for those who do not know you, how I pray as your servant that you will overwhelm them with such conviction that they will run to the foot of the cross and they will cry out for that undeserved mercy that you will lavish upon them. Lord, may you use them to glorify you in their life and someday fully enjoy all that you have for them as saints that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray with great thanksgiving. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org.